Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, 3 through 14. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. (laughs) But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, uh, there's a lot of confusion in history about angels. A lot of confusion. There are entire books written about angels. There are uh, entire cults made around angels. There are entire religious Groups that worship the angels. A lot of misconceptions about angels. Most of what we know about angels actually comes from fiction literature. Most of what people know about angels and the devil, or what they claim to know about angels and the devil, come from Milton's Paradise Lost. That's not the Bible. Just in case you were curious, Paradise Lost is not a book that you skipped. In the Bible, it's not like Genesis, Paradise Lost, Leviticus doesn't work that way. It's not in there. Paradise Lost is not in the Bible. It's a fiction work written by uh, John Milton, where he is trying to articulate what he thinks happened in the fall of the devil and the fall of man. It's a fun book to read, but it's fiction. So we get a lot of our thoughts from... uh, those things from that book. So it's very difficult sometimes to go with what the scripture says versus what that book says. So, just a heads up. Most people that you talk to are going to have some weird conception about angels. It'll be weird. One of the ones that is common is that everyone has a guardian angel on their shoulder. No, you do not. It's not in the Bible. There are angels. 
There are angels that are referred to as guardians. You don't get one on your shoulder. It's not, not how it works. Um, they are working constantly. They are creatures made by God. That bothers some people. Angels are creatures made by God. They are not God. They are not demigods. They are not authorities. They are creatures given a job to do, made by God. The angels you see in the Bible are weird. They are strange. They've got four or five faces sometimes. They've got three faces sometimes. Sometimes they look like people. Always they're terrifying. They are always scary. Angels are never cute. They're always terrifying. They might be beautiful at times. But often, they are so frightening that whoever encounters them falls on their face in fear for their life. And by whoever, I mean Joshua, the warrior of the Lord, who was accustomed to fighting enemies, falls on his face. Ezekiel, the basket cakes prophet, I call him the basket cakes prophet because he does crazy things like attacks a rock for a year for fun, to show an illustration. Uh, he walks around naked for another year. That's a fun one. Uh, these these weird things. The One of my favorite phrases in the book is, the rims were large and awesome. Um, he, he is a strange prophet. He falls on his face before them. Amos, the brave shepherd of Tekoa, the harvester, the fruit harvester, go, who stands in front of his adversaries and proclaims, repent or die. This man who seems to have no fear in the face of false prophets and in the face of kings that could murder him falls on his face before God when God shows up, uh, when an angel of the Lord shows up. Elijah is terrified when he runs into an angel of the Lord. The angels are terrified, but they do not compare to the Lord. They are not gods. They are not uh, independent demigods. They are not at war with you, or um, necessarily at war with each other? They are not. Now, just to answer a few questions before we dive into this text. This text has nothing to do with angels. Except to say, Jesus is better than them. But in order to understand this text, we have to get the fact that a lot of people in the first century thought angels were how you communicated with God. That angels were the route that you went. You had to know which angel to talk to, and you had to know where to get the angel, and what to do to appease the angel, so that the angel would deliver your message to God. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is the better messenger. He's the better messenger. And this entire section, verses 4 through 14, is about why Jesus is a better messenger than these amazing creatures that God made. They are amazing. I mean, think about some of the descriptions. In Isaiah, they're called flaming ones, or ones on fire. So get that image in your head. These things fly back and forth above the Lord. They've got six wings. They scream, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. Over and over and over. They've got eyes all around them. They've got six wings and they're creepy looking. And they fly back and forth and they are on fire. How weird 
is that. Then you've got the angel that comes and announces to uh, Mary and Joseph, Gabriel, he comes and announces he looks pretty normal. There's no real description of him as terrifying other than the fact that he's just this incredibly radiant being. Then you've got the ones that are outside the tomb who are announcing Jesus' resurrection, who it says, had clothing like lightning. I don't know how you put on lightning. But that's what they had. Not like light, like lightning. Does that mean you could only see them in a flash? I I don't understand. You've got the ones that Ezekiel describes who look like lions and tigers and bears, oh my, with a human face and wings. This is weird. So you've got these amazing creatures, but they are just creatures. And our messenger to God, our intercessor with God is Jesus. And this is why he's better. So let's dive right in. Jesus, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. So, when you are validated as the son of someone, when you are validated as someone's son, there's two senses in which that happens. One is you prove yourself to be their son by the achievements you do. By the achievements you do. So, for example, I once knew a young man who's, um, in fact, a better example for you. Now, this just popped in my head. You're all familiar with basketball, Steph Curry, maybe. Um, big basketball player. He is short and seemingly came out of nowhere. He's a short basketball player. He plays point guard, which means every person who is short should like him. He shoots like nobody's business. This guy is an incredible shot. And he shoots the basket, basketball like nothing. Just, he walk, he seems to walk across half court line and toss it up and it goes in every time. This guy is an incredible shot. And at first, when I first heard about this guy playing, I don't watch sports, uh, except maybe once or twice a year, I'll watch a game. And I heard about this guy, people were talking about him, so I went and watched the game, and I was like, this guy came out of nowhere. This is incredible. And I'm thinking, he came out of nowhere until I found out that he's Del Curry's son. For those of you that don't know, Del Curry played for the Charlotte Hornets with uh, LJ and Larry Johnson and Muggsy Bogues. They were the big three on that team. And Del Curry could seemingly never miss a shot. He held the three-point uh, percentage for years. He held the top three-point percentage shooting and he was an incredible shot. The guy, literally, there's a video of him, his son. He's now uh, in his, I guess, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, Steph Curry, messing with his dad, throws a ball at him at half court. And his dad picks up the ball, turns around and shoots it and makes it from half court in a suit. <laughs> That's who Del Curry is. Steph Curry shows up on the scene and starts making three-point shots, and everybody's blown away until you realize his dad is Del Curry. He better make three-point shots. That man better have a good shot. His dad 
is one of the greatest three-point shooters in history. So that's one way you validate that you're somebody's son. You do it through your achievements and skill. The other way you validate that you're somebody's son is simply by being their son. You validate by achievement, skill, personality, and you validate by simply being their son. Jesus, get this, is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. So when Jesus rescues us from sin, it shouldn't be a surprise. Because, oh yeah, his daddy made everything. And then you read in John 1.1, oh yeah, and Jesus was there making it with him. He is creator. Jesus is validated as having the name of God. He bears the name, which means when he walks into the room, everyone knows, oh, Jesus, Messiah, Creator, Lord of all. So, I'm going to ask this question over and over in the sermon. Who do you want taking your message to God? An angel with four faces, a lion, tiger, bear, and human. Oh my, it's really a lion, an eagle, a bear, and human. Um, but you, you've got these angels with four faces taking messages to God, which is terrifying enough. Or do you want God's Son to do it? Yeah, God's Son, right? His name that He has inherited is greater than any. He inherited it because He's not created. This is the emphasis of this passage. Jesus is not created. He's not a created being, unlike the angels who are created, he's not created. He is Son of God, begotten, not created. He was there in the beginning when the Pharisees asked him, who is your father? He goes, if you knew my father, you wouldn't ask the question, because I've always been. So John Elkins, paraphrase, remix. But that's what he means when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Tells him, Yahweh, I'm the guy. I'm God. Then they seek to stone him because he claimed to be God. So, first, we have this initial statement. He has become superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, I want you to understand, is both Son of God validated by simply being the Son, and he's the Son of God validated by his actions. He is the Son of God simply because he's the Son of God. He bears the name of God. He bears the image of God. He is God. And then he is the Son of God because his actions as well validate him to be the Son of God. He can shoot the lights out because his daddy can shoot the lights out. And he has proven himself to have the same acumen as his dad, as his father. So, says in verse 5, for which, for to which of the angels did God ever say? Now remember, he's battling against this idea that the angels are carrying the message to God. And that Jesus is better, he's, he's arguing Jesus is better as a messenger than these angels. Angels means messenger, by the way. That's the Greek word, messenger. 
angel messenger. So it says, he's a better messenger than these other guys. It says, for which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now these two phrases are from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, where David is given the Davidic promise of a Messiah. He's given the Davidic promise of a Messiah. A son will sit on the throne forever. A son will sit on the throne forever. Today you will be my son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. And then in 2 Samuel, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. These are profound statements about God's anointed king who is going to defeat all the enemies of life and he is going to reign over all things forever. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This indicates that Christ is an heir. He's heir to the throne. He is not a created being who has been handed the throne. He's heir to the throne. And that's important that you understand he is heir because if he's just a created being who is handed the throne, then he can lose it. But if he's heir to the throne, it's his by divine right. He's heir to the throne. He's the Davidic monarchical promise that was given to David. This is Jesus. You will have offspring that will sit on the throne forever. That's what God tells David. Your offspring will sit on the throne forever. He will be king forever. That's a reference here to Jesus Christ. Angels are not kings. They are not the Messiah. They cannot save you. They do not have the same authority as the Son, the heir of the kingdom. And Jesus is declared heir by God. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, God says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. He is validated further in His humility. Which is weird, right? If you, if you were king, how would you validate yourself as king? You'd build a big palace, you'd have a scepter, you'd have a sword, you'd build an army, you would conquer everyone. But I want you to see the way God validates himself as king. In Philippians chapter 2, he humbles himself, taking the very nature of a servant, putting on human skin, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus is validated as king because of his humility. So right away, when we think of Jesus as the Son of God, we ought to be drawn to him being begotten by God and coming on the earth, and you remember the story. He lays in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a barn, a bunch of animals, poor, destitute, messy, smelly. But the Son of God Almighty, here to say.
That's your king. The extent to which he came down to make himself humble so that you would know him is tremendous. Your king, the son, came down to you. Second, we have here in verse 6, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world. Let's stop there and just talk about this phrase, firstborn. Uh, I want you to get, Jesus doesn't have a beginning. John 1.1 1, 1 talks about the Word being with God, the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Nothing was created that was created without him. He has been since the beginning. He is before all things. He will be after all things. He is eternal. Jesus doesn't have a beginning. Now, uh, I get that philosophically. I can go, okay, he doesn't have a beginning. All right, and I can just kind of let that hang out there. But when I try to think too heavy about that, it becomes too much. I mean, just consider, how does a guy who has no beginning get born of a virgin? He has no start, but he's born. I don't, it doesn't make sense. We know he has no ending because he ascends into the clouds. That's not hard to understand. He ascends into the clouds. He's still alive today. I get that. The born thing throws me. But I just need to pause here and recognize that this phrase, firstborn, does not mean that Jesus has a start. Rather, it means preeminence or most important. This is played on the ancient Near Eastern concept that the firstborn was the one who was to receive all of the inheritance. And he was to be entrusted to divvy up that inheritance among his family. This is playing off that. So when it says Jesus is the firstborn, what it's saying is he is the preeminent one. He is the one above all things. And it says again, when he brings his firstborn into the world. So here he brings Jesus into the world. Remember, when Jesus came into the world and put on skin, what did he look like? A baby. He didn't come into the world wearing battle armor with an army. He came into the world as a baby wearing skin, crying, unable to walk or talk. comes into the world as a baby, and it says, when he brings him into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So, the second thing we see about Jesus, first, Jesus is God's son. Second, Jesus is awesome, or worthy of worship. That's what awesome means. Worthy of worship. He is awesome. The angels praise him in Luke chapter 2. They praise him. In the clouds, in front of the, uh, in front of the shepherds. Again, in Philippians, it talks about him having the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Lord of God the Father. This is, he is worthy of worship. So when Jesus comes in the form of a baby, then we are told, and the angels are told, worship this one. Worship him. Let everyone worship him. God brings him in, he, brings him into the world in flesh, and he becomes a man. Now, just an aside note here. Jesus subjects himself to time. 
I want you to, to think about the glory of Jesus Christ now, just for a moment. First, we saw he's a son and he doesn't come like a warrior or he doesn't make himself son or validate his sonship by killing everybody. Instead, he becomes a baby, hum- humiliates himself and dies on a cross. That's how he validates himself as God, as king, as Lord. Second, when he comes down and he's worthy of all worship, Jesus, the eternal being, subjects himself to time and then stays there. Now, this is a bit of an ethereal thought, but I want you to imagine a timeline. Just in your head, right here. Here's the timeline. Beginning, end. World begins, world ends. You with me? Somewhere in here is Jesus coming as a baby. Make a big circle around that timeline. Everything outside of that timeline is fluid and able to move wherever it wants to and does not have to stay on the line. Everything inside that circle has to stay on the line. God exists outside of that circle. Weird, I know. God exists outside of that circle. He can, he's fluid. In time, not an issue to him. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If you took a timeline and turned it this way so that everything appeared as one dot. That's really probably more accurate to how God sees time, but because we can't really understand it, it's still not adequate as as an explanation. That God kind of sees everything happening right there. Whereas we see it all on this timeline. We can't get out of that because we're bound to time. We have a beginning, and though uh, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you will live forever, and not die forever, you have a beginning. So everything's on a timeline. God is fluid outside. He's able to move in and out, all these things. He's able to change time. He's able to alter time. Jesus comes into time and stays in time and subjects himself to time for your good and for your glory that you would know him, that you would be made into the image of God, that you would be transformed to look more like Jesus. Jesus comes into time and subjects himself to time. Consider the depth of such a love that would do that, that would subject himself to time. The third thing that we see of Jesus, well, first he takes an aside here again in verse 7, and he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are winds and ministers of fire. That's a weird phrase. But both wind and fire stop. Jesus is eternal and does not stop. He continues to work and continues to move. He is constant. No beginning and no end. Verse 8, but the sun, but of the sun, he says, so contrasting the angels, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness or your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus is declared king. He is eternal king forever. Notice, it's not temporary. He's not king as long as you let him be king. He's king forever. He is king on the throne forever. You didn't vote him in. You can't vote him out. He is king. It's one of those things where you say, Somebody tells you, well, I just don't want to submit to Jesus in that way. You can literally laugh at them and go, you don't really have a choice. 
You don't choose whether or not you're going to submit to a king if the king goes, yeah, you're going to submit. You're going to. You're just not going to be happy about it. It's going to happen. This isn't the way. You don't live in a democracy. You live in a theocracy. Jesus Christ listens to you talk and then does what he wants. That's theocratic rule. God is king. A monarchical theocracy. Jesus is king, and though he listens to you, he does not have to. You with me? He is the king with a righteous scepter. Scepter, the sign of authority. The sign by which a king could usher people out of the room and into prison, usher them out and into freedom. He has the authority to do it. That's what the scepter is. He rules by his will and his power. He has loved righteousness. Jesus is the just king. His scepter is of righteousness. He makes just decisions. So if you ever doubt that Jesus is making just decisions, go to this verse. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness, the scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, Jesus rules righteously. And I know that from our perspective, it's sometimes difficult to see how things in this earth could at all be righteous. Jesus, why didn't you? Jesus, why won't you? We won't shy from those discussions here, by the way. You stay for lunch and you got a heavy discussion. We're going to talk about it. Jesus, why didn't he? Why did he do this? Why did this not work out the way that it is? Why is an acceptable question to answer so long as you're willing to hear God's answer? Doubt is an acceptable thing so long as you're willing to stand before a living God and say, help my unbelief. This is good. Doubt is evidence that you are thinking. And thinking is evidence that God is moving. Jesus is the just king. And then it says, the oil, he is... God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, there's two options here that God is, that the author of Hebrews is talking, either the oil of his companions, the oil of gladness beyond his companions, his companions being the, um, being the angels, or the oil of gladness beyond his companions, his companions being those who believe in him. Now, either way, I don't think that's necessarily an issue here, except to say these things, that Jesus shares the oil of joy. According to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, Jesus shares this joy that overflows from him into the hearts of his companions, be it angels or us, the hearts of his companions, and overflows into them. We used to sing a song when I was little. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes lame to walk in the dying to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well within my soul. And it was this song about joy exploding from your soul. Right? Now, as a kid, that was great because you got to make the punch motions. And you got to go, whoosh! You know, and splash, splash! And everybody laughed and enjoyed it. As an adult, I want you to think about the image that it's giving you. That within your soul is a well of life 
that is fed by an underground spring. Jesus says to the woman at the well, I would give you springs of living water welling up from within you. There is a reservoir within you who have trusted in Christ Jesus of joy and love and peace and mercy that wells up from within you. And oh, when you tap into it, the joy that overflows from you is absurd. One of the great things I uh, share with non-believers is this simple phrase, yes, but I'm happier than you are. They might say that I'm nuts. They might say that I don't have the same things they do. And I can honestly look at them with all the love in my heart and go, yeah, but I know Jesus and I'm happier than you are. I have yet to meet a a non-believer with my level of happiness. And I mean happy. I don't mean some ethereal, sideways joy. I mean happy. I'm happier than my atheist friends. They are miserable. Even in their best days. They're like me when I'm depressed. I am happier than they are. And that is because the overwhelming joy of Jesus Christ lives in me and I have learned to tap into it. There are Christians who have not learned to tap into that joy. I, I will admit that. And I, and I weep for them. It might be you. I don't know. But you have a well of joy in your life that is buried under junk. And all you got to do is move it and feast on the Word. That's the start, by the way, feasting on the Word. There's other steps I would give you to remove the junk off your life and feast on the Word of God and tap into that joy. There's other things, but, but the start would be just to start reading the Bible. That's the start. So this joy is poured out by God. And then next we see here in verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Jesus is creator. He is the foundation of life on this earth. Not only are Christians able to be happier than everyone else in the world, they are also given a foundation that is greater than everyone else in the world. We have a foundation in Christ Jesus who created all things. And all this stuff is going to wear out. Everything. Your, uh, you already know that the things we make wear out. Trucks wear out. iPads wear out. Phones wear out. you got to get a new one every two years. All these various things wear out. But also the things like trees and ground. The ground is going to wear out. Process that for a minute. The air is going to wear out. But God will remain. 
Jesus will remain. All this stuff he will roll up like a garment. This is what uh, Horatio Spafford talks about when he sings, uh, the heavens will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. All this stuff will be worn out and Jesus will come back and he will make all things new. And he will resurrect life from the dead. This is tremendous. He is creator who has not stopped creating but continues to create. Finally, we see Jesus is the victor. In verse 13, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God is right now destroying the enemies of the kingdom. Indeed, there will come a day when Jesus will ride back to this earth and the wrath of God will be poured out on wickedness and Jesus will claim his bride, the church, to himself and rescue. And he is king now, and he will be physically present king then. He is the victor. There is no losing with him. So take heart, Christian. When you look around this world and you see people aren't responding to the gospel, people are living wickedly, there's struggle and pain and turmoil, take heart and remember, Jesus has already won. He's just being patient. Jesus has already won. He's just being patient. And he will be back. And he will be victor. He claims the victory. Finally, he says, they Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to the serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Those who inherit salvation is an obvious reference to you and I. We believe in Jesus Christ and he has rescued us. He is the master, the king, the Lord of all glory. He validates himself as king in his humiliation. He validates himself as king in his righteousness. He validates himself as king in every way possible. Isn't that the messenger you want going to God on your behalf? Isn't that the voice you want in God's ear? Or do you want a lion, bear, eagle thing? Yeah, I want Jesus. I don't want a flaming thing running back and forth, crying out. I want Jesus, God of God, King of kings, Lord of all. I want Jesus, who stands at the right hand of majesty, to say, this one's mine. So we repent, we trust in Christ, we follow hard after him, and in him we find life and joy and peace. You have a reserve in Jesus Christ of joy and happiness that is unparalleled.